morning. Uh, I remember, so you know, many of you have heard my story, and so I, I became a Christian my my freshman year of high school, and uh, I remember, you know, the the post Christian, you know, experience. You know, you, you you come off this high mountaintop of I just accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, and then the next step is you you have to start to like learn more things about Him, of course, right? Not everybody who becomes a Christian like in the moment. It's not like the Holy Spirit dwells you and hears. Here's every bit of biblical and information and theological constructs that you need to know, just downloaded. Right? We spend a lifetime learning these things, and so most of the time, right, unless you've kind of grown up in the church your whole life, which we commend and we love, you know, and you've kind of learned these things as you've grown in, in Christian likeness, most of the time when you become a new Christian, you're probably not exactly 100% sure what you're getting into. Right? Like you know the basics of what it means to be a, a, a person redeemed by the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ, but you have to learn some things about God and who he is, uh, and you will do that until your last dying breath. You'll never stop. If you're in your you know, 50s and 60s and you said, I can stop going to Bible studies. I've been going for you know, 30 years. I have news for you. You can't. You've got to keep learning and keep studying. And you will find new things about the Lord. One of the first things that I was intrigued by or wanted to dig into and know more about as a new Christian was the idea of heaven. I loved the idea of heaven. As a matter of fact, I would argue most people, to some degree, who come to know Christ, they come because they, they, they like the idea of going there versus the alternative, and they hear about this place called heaven and how wonderful it sounds. But if you remember, I was a freshman in high school, and as a freshman in high school, you never believe this, but I was academically nothing and a punk. I didn't read... Um, you know, my mom is still baffled when she hears about the, the level of page work of reading in seminary that I did and talked about how much I actually enjoyed most of it. She's like, oh, yeah, I read like a thousand pages this week. She looks at me like I'm not her son sometimes <laughs> because she remembers the high school kid who the only thing he'd read was PC Magazine, you know, learn about computers and stuff. And that's the only reading he ever did. But I wanted to know about heaven. I wanted to learn all about it and understand it. And here's why in the selfish motivation of a high school mind. I loved the idea of a place where there was no work. And I firmly believed with my theological prowess as a ninth grader that in heaven, the, the, the specific kind of work that would never possibly ever be there was homework. Because homework stinks. Right? They won't say it out loud, but anyone here who is like high school or down will say amen. Right? You're thinking like, yeah, it does. Right. And I was like, oh my gosh, can we just do heaven now? Like, I'm looking at college. I don't want to go to college. I, I just, I want heaven where there's no homework and no work work. And it's like, it's like you know, Bahamas Resort, right? Like Sandals, Jamaica. Uh, and we just sit there and we have our lounge chair and our, our, our Mai Tai. And then every so often we put it down and we go to the, the chapel of two million people and we all sing uh, Amazing Grace for like 30 years. And then we go back to our lawn chairs. That sounds awesome. No work, no homework, no labor, no tediousness, no weeding. I weeded yesterday in that gross heat. Oh, to be a place where there's no weeding. No work. I loved this. So imagine my surprise when I ended up going into youth ministry and going to college and having my theology of heaven just shattered to bits 
and have these wonderful, delightful college professors start to tell me about elements of Scripture which seem to suggest that work would be like a part of heaven and the new earth when Christ comes again and restores all things. I was devastated. And so what it caused me to do is, is to think about if, if work is something we hate, some of us love going to work. I love going to work. But there are days I don't want to go to work. I can admit that as your pastor. Where I don't want to get up in the morning. Where I would much rather lay in a hammock in my backyard than come here and figure out how to set up everything for worship and all those things. Right? No matter how much you love your job, and I love my job a lot, you really at times don't love your job. I guarantee you there's no one here who has loved every minute of every job they've ever had. You all and I, to a degree, hate work. And so if it's this thing that we think of as, ugh, I got to do it, I need to live, why would it be part of a world after the fall, after the restoration of things? Why would there be work in heaven? How can that be? And so I spent a good amount of my college years trying to develop a theology of work, and to understand how work factors into the life of a Christian, and more importantly even, the afterlife of a Christian. If it's this thing that stinks, and heaven is nothing that stinks, why is it there? And that's, that's what I, I kind of spent years and years trying to develop. Our text this morning, Psalm 127, is really a, a, a kind of a groundwork for a theology of work. How do we think about our work? And by work, I don't just mean the professional job title that you have on LinkedIn, but all of the work that we do, every collective work, anything you think of as, as laborious. How do we approach these things? How do we think about them? Are they good? Are they evil? What, what gives in all of that world? And so we're going to spend some time in 120, Psalm 127 trying to dissect that. But before we do, we need to go to the very beginning in the book of Genesis and take a quick look. So don't stand for this one, but I'm just going to read it. This is Genesis uh, 127 to 28 and then 215. Um, the first is the creation of man and then there's a, a reiteration. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. And then later on, there's a reiteration. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Here's why we had to read that passage before Psalm 127. All of that scripture that we just looked at was before the fall of man, which happens in Genesis 3. Right? And so up to the point where, where Eve was deceived by the serpent and then Adam deceived as well and sin entered the world, everything was perfect. Everything was as exactly as God had originally created it and intended it to be. He made the world, he filled it with creatures, he separated dry land and sea and the sky and all of the expanse and day and night and moon and stars and then he crowned his creation in glory by making man, male and female, in his own image. And everything's perfect and part of that perfection is a demand that the ground be worked and that dominion be had over all of the world. 
Right? And dominion is not sitting on a lounger with grapes and a palm tree telling the birds what to do. Right? This isn't a Disney movie where the animals like, come and do all the work for you. Dominion means to rule, to cultivate. We are supposed to make other people. They're supposed to have children and raise them and, and fill the earth with people and to have dominion over the animals, to rule over the land, to till it, to work it, to flourish it, to invent things. When the iPhone was invented, that's part of the cultural mandate. Steve Jobs didn't know that. He you know, thought about some Buddhist stuff. But we, we make things and invent things and flourish things and advance in medicine and science and all these things as part of this cultural mandate. We are supposed to work. So we have to understand that biblically, our work is in no way a part of the fall. We are to work. We were supposed to work when the world was made. We're supposed to keep working after the fall. We're supposed to keep working after Jesus came and died and rose, and we'll keep working after we die, and we'll keep working after he comes again. Work is something you can never escape. If you think, man, someday I'll get to die and be with Jesus and not work anymore, I'm sorry, there's no retirement in heaven. The good news of that is you don't have to save for retirement in heaven. Right? We met with our financial advisor, and he's planning out, like, okay, if you retire at this age, you've got to make your money last for, you know, 30 years, 20 years, whatever. Imagine trying to have to plan your money to last for eternity. It's a good thing we don't have to worry about these things, but work is going to be a part of your eternal existence on the other side of this life. So if you're a retiree now, it's not retirement. It's a couple-decade vacation before you go back to work. Sorry. Vince ruined your fun again. Right. Now, understanding this, that there is work in heaven, how do we think about it? Are, there, are workaholics better Christians? Is it better if we work ourselves to the bone? Is laziness a bad thing? Where is the in-between? How do we deal with the stresses of the work that we do, the jobs that we have, the tasks that we're given as, as workers, as parents, as students, and all of these things, well, Psalm 127 helps us begin to seek some answers. And so I want to invite you to stand in reverence of God's word as we read together. Uh, if you're new here, we stand when we read God's word for no other reason than what I say isn't reverent, <laughs> but what the Lord says through his word is reverent, and so we honor that. Let's read. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Amen. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you. We're going to get gusto. All right, have a seat. One of these days, we'll, we'll figure it out. Ah, Presbyterians. Love them and hate them all at the same time. And I am one, so I guess I love myself and hate myself at the same time. At least you have good food. The psalm is ascribed to King Solomon. And when you read the psalm, King Solomon just comes out, right? If you've ever read Ecclesiastes, what's the key, what's the word that summarizes all of Ecclesiastes? 
Vanity, right? Vanity, uselessness. You can almost hear Solomon in this going, everything's vanity unless the Lord's in it, right? Vanity, vanity, vanity. You can build your house, vanity. You can be in the watchtower, vanity. You can get up early, go to sleep late, vanity. Solomon is all through this. And beyond that, though, this psalm to me, when I first read it, it's very odd because it doesn't seem to have one cohesive idea. Maybe as we were going through this series of the, the Songs of Ascent, you've been kind of reading ahead, and you got to this one, and you read the first two verses, and you said, you know, that's great. You know, I can get behind this unless the Lord builds a house, you know, and, and toil and sleep, and he gives me rest. But then all of a sudden in three, behold, children are a heritage. What does that have to do with rest? I ask that especially because my children have nothing to do with rest whatsoever, Right? I read the first two verses of the psalm and I think I put myself in a state of, yes, I want to rest in the Lord. And then I see the word children and I go, I can't rest today. I have kids. They get me up early in the morning. The reason I'm up late and up early is because of my kids. Right? How am I supposed to rest with them? What do those things have to do with each other? And so we'll unpack them both. And then we'll look at how they connect together. And I promise you, there is actually a reason. Solomon's not just on like a random rant of like, and by the way, kids are a gift of God, right? He's not trying to make some statement. These are wrapped all into each other. And so let's start in verse 1 and 2. The first thing we notice reading verse 1 and 2 is the Lord is working, right? The Lord works. The Lord builds. The Lord watches the Lord gives rest to his beloved. He gives them sleep. Right? The Lord is working. Our God is not a God of heavenly lounging, but a God of active movement. We serve a God who created this world, who continues to sustain it, and who actively is working in the midst of his people at a corporate level, at a global level, and at, a, at an individual level. So God is working for you and in you and through you and on behalf of you actively, daily, all the time. He's working on behalf of this church and the big C church and the world around us. He is doing a thing. The second thing we notice is that we also work. Those who build, those who watch. We also are doing something. We play a part in the work, as Psalm 127 puts it. So when we read this from the very outset, God is a God who works, and we are a God who, not a God, we are a people who work. Don't hear me say that walking out of here. He said we're all gods. No, right? That's, that's unbelievably important to understand. We play a part. We do have work as part of our calling of the Lord upon us. But God is actively working as well. And so we have this, this building and this watching. And now verse 2 starts to talk about these ideas of rising and, and, and resting. Right? And we think at first they're different concepts. So one, we're building. One, we're watching. Three, we're rising. You know, four, we're resting. But, but the second verse isn't really so much a, a new idea. But it is this, it is this description and prescription of how the first idea is supposed to flesh itself out. Here's what I mean. About a two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had roofers here at the church, and they were building a new roof. 
you know, the, the, the roof above this room right here and the, the lobby outside, and, uh, part of the cafe outside. Uh, we had leaks. If you look up at our ceiling tiles, you can see where some of them used to be. Uh, everybody's looking up. Right now, right? Right. Hopefully you're right under a light and you looked up. Ah, he got me. Right. But you see all these leaks. And, and so they came and they were fixing the roof. And they were fixing the roof. They started it on a few weeks ago. I don't know if you remember. We had the record temperatures. It was like a feels like of 104 degrees or something. Right? It was massively hot. And so they came at like 6, 7 in the morning some of those days. And they were out of here by 11.30. The builders of a house are the early risers. Some of the work we have involves getting up early. And so we see that verse 2 actually goes to describe verse 1 by fleshing out. Look, if, if, you, if you build a house without God, it's, it's all in vain. If you stand watch, which when do people normally stand watch? Late at night, through the night, right? It's in vain. All of that early rising and late staying up is, is vanity. It's, it's useless. It doesn't help, right? It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. I also think that verse 2 is a commentary about the way in which we are to work. The key phrase in, in verse uh, 2 is anxious toil. It is the anxious toil that the Lord does not want for us. That's what he wants us to give up. We may at times get up early, and we may at times physically go to sleep late. Right? I get up early all the time. I don't like it, but I do it because children make me. Right? So it's not a matter of if you get up early or go to bed late, you're somehow in sin or not working properly. But the key phrase is anxious toil. The Lord wants us to understand that it is not through anxiety that we get to find rest, but through working in light of who he is in our lives. And so what do we say so far? The Lord works and we work. All of our work is in vain if he isn't working. All of our watching is in vain if he isn't watching. I don't care if you put in 80 hours a week at your job. If the Lord isn't doing a thing and a work in the midst of that and, and flourishing it or helping it, you could put in 200 hours. You're not going to succeed. Our, our success, our, our, our fruits of labor don't come as a result of the amount of sweat equity we put in. I know folks, they're like, I only worked 60 hours this week. I'm in conversations all the time. Pastors, by the way, do this. Like, they're like, there's like this compete about, well, yeah, yeah, I know I'm paid for 40 hours, but I'm doing like 75. You, uh, 80, 90, right? Like, there's like this buildup. Somehow that makes you a more valuable person. If you somehow work, I'll tell you what, it, my goal would be to work 40 hours a week exactly. It's never going to happen, but, right? Production in terms of hours isn't what helps us. And here's what happens. Most of us who are overworked, who think about work too much, no matter how many hours you put in, no matter how many late nights and early mornings, you're always still going to sleep at the end of the day with an anxiety that it wasn't enough. 
It's never enough. You're sleepless because you're thinking about the one thing that you didn't get done that you should have or the thing you didn't do quite as well as you should have or what you got wrong here or there. And the reason is because we, in the midst of the fall, have defined work in the poorest of ways possible. We are a society that so stringently has based our life on production. And what we can bring to the table the difference between the work that we do and the work that God does, um, and this is, a, this is a, a Piper word. John Piper said that this sermon decades ago. Um, the work that we do is the work that, that we do under the lordship of Christ. God's work is what he calls the decisive work. And if we can grasp that word, that word decisive, and understand that it is ascribed only to God, then what that does is it frees us up to do our work in such a way that does what we can, that puts it all on the line, and at the end of the day when we go to bed, we trust that God will do the decisive part of our labor. That he will be the one that makes the house building worthwhile. right? That he will be the one that takes it that it is enough that we are not called to kill ourselves in the name of all the various jobs and titles and roles that we have. Right? We're not called to kill ourselves down to the bone for the job title that we hold or the, the office of deacon or elder that we hold or pastor that we hold or church Bible study leader that we hold or parent that we hold or family member caregiver that we hold or even friend caregiver that we hold. We're called to have a limited understanding of the capacity of our work and an unlimited understanding of the capacity of God's work. And so we come to God offering what we have, and we trust that God says, it is enough. I'll take it from here. And by the way, I've been taking it before we ever got here. It's not a physical lack of doing stuff, but it's a reversal and a rethinking of the attitude with which we come to our work. We don't think of it as having to be something we do until we feel like we've arrived and defined ourselves by it and produced enough and earned enough for our family. But instead, we define our work by the Lord gave us a talent and a giftedness in certain areas of life. Whether you're a lawyer, a teacher, a waitress, a nurse. And so I'm going to do that and I'm going to trust that the Lord will be in the midst of it and walk through it and work alongside as I work in tandem and in partnership. And at the end of the day, I'm going to hang it up and I'm going to trust that it's enough. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to rest in that. And tomorrow we'll do it again. And someday I'll breathe my last and no one will care how many units I've sold No one will care how many cars I've fixed or tables I've put pancakes on. The, on. No one will care. Right? I will do my work faithfully, and I will allow God to take it from there. Now, when you read 127, nearly every scholar that has looked at 127, every theologian, every professor, every biblical scholar, every pastor, worth their salt, goes to two different places in Scripture uh, where we see examples of, of, of a type of work ethic, right? Every single one. 
Peterson, who we spend a lot of time focusing on, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, who we spend some time quoting and looking on, all of these guys will look at, at two different places in Scripture, and they are, they are this. Number one, they are the church at Thessalonica. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. One of the big problems that they had in Thessalonia is that there were a group of people amongst those in the church who were lazy no-gooders. But they weren't, they weren't lazy like in the sense of like, you know, you have your like typical, I don't know, you know, like 16, 17-year-old boy who you have to pull by his legs out of bed in the morning who doesn't want to do anything. By the way, I'm describing myself. If you think I'm talking about you, I'm not. I'm talking about me. Where they're lazy was in an intentional way. Here's what they saw. They had seen the Pharisees overwork and try to take the place of God. And so their philosophy on life was, we're going to do as little work as possible. Why? Because God is provident and sovereign. A few weeks ago, we talked about the providence of God, you know, the election of God's people. Um, we, we hear that used as an excuse not to do mission work all the time today. Why should we be out in the community if the Lord has already chosen who he's going to save? Well, because he wants to use us to go do it. Right? But we, we, we have this, this church in Thessalonica, and they're not doing anything. And their reasoning is, we don't want to get in the way of, of God doing his thing. And so they sit back, and they're just waiting for the Lord to do a work, to revive something. To do a majestic thing that shakes the church and grows it. We're not going to be out in the community displaying the glory of Christ. God's going to go out and be glorious and people will show up. And, you know, they, they are lazy people and Paul thrashes them. I'm not going to go through the passage now, but if you want to read it, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul has the response to them. And he essentially says, I've heard that there's some lazy people in your church. You need to tell them to get off their butt and get to work for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. It's written in polite biblical Greek, so that's not what he says, but that's what he says. Right? The second example is the polar opposite of that. And we go to Genesis 11, and we see the Tower of Babel. Right? The people started to decide that they had their way to God figured out. The Lord moved them in a certain direction, and they said, no, 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 we're going to get to you on our own merit. We're going to build a tower up to you. It's so monumental that it will be the greatest thing ever beheld and they start to build this tower. And what does the Lord do? The Lord confuses their language so that none of them can understand each other. And the project crumbles and falls by the wayside. Somewhere there's this half, you know, tenth, one-tenth finished tower that just be the reminder of their utter failure to, to do what they thought they could do. Right? They're the people that literally live out. If the Lord isn't building, you're building your house in vain. It won't last. Right? And here's, here's why these two are always brought up. Because I believe, as do most, that most churches, and this isn't a lecture at Stowe Prez, you just happen to be sitting here, but most churches everywhere are horrifically guilty of both of these views of a work ethic. They are. Within the church, how many of us we come, we sit, we listen, we might sing at like this volume right here. Praise the Lord. Right, and then we go get our donut and we go home and we say, you know, the Lord is going to use, oh, that person up front, the Lord's going to use them in a mighty way to bring, to bring people. Right? Or man, I, I pray that the Lord does something within our church 
to, to, to grow it and to let new people come to know Christ or, you know. We're the Thessalonians. I, I would get involved, but like, I don't want to get in, I'm not that talented and I don't want to get in the way of what God's going to do there. And so I'm just, I'm just going to sit on the sideline and, and watch the elders and, and staff people and like six volunteers do their, their job really well. And I'm just going to applaud them. And every once in a while, one of them will do a really good job. So I'll, I'll work by sending a card to thank them for it. Right. But like, I'm not, I don't want to get my hands. Right? We do that as a church. Man, we're guilty of that. Every one of us to some degree, right? Rather than asking yourself, what is your God-given role within the church that you are called to be a part of? Whether that's here, whether you're a visitor and you're not sure if that should be here, by the way, we love you, right? Or if you're visiting and you have a church at home that you're going to go home to, wherever you are, right, your calling is to be a person who works and invests. And if you've been sitting in the pew or the chairs... Waiting for the Lord to do something. Good Lord, maybe he's trying to tell you, you're going to be the one I'm going to use to do something. Get up. As Paul would say, get off your butt. Get to work. In other ways, we function just like those in Genesis 11. I've heard, I've heard this phrase, and again, if, you think, if you've said this to me in this church, don't be offended because you're not unique you're not as special as you think you are. Every church I've ever been in has said this. Well, you know, those rooms used to be full of this and that program. And there were 50 of these people here. And we used to do this thing with, you know, with a Bible study. And we have to have this exact kids program. And we had these musical things. And, and you know, if we could just bring those back, then we could. A lot of times in church, we become guilty of trying to build the house the way we want to build the house. And when things don't necessarily work the way they should, one of the things we love to do is we like to default to what used to work. And sometimes what used to work is what's going to work again. Right? I'm not saying we should never bring history back around. Right? One of the things we're learning in churches right now across the globe uh, and in young people <clears throat> is that a lot of young people actually really are enjoying liturgy in church. 80s and 90s and early 2000s, you had this movement of, like, let's make church less liturgical. Let's have, you know, four songs a sermon, no prayer, no nothing, and just be done. You know, you had, like, ten minutes of singing and then an hour and a half sermon, and people went and had their coffee. And you got all this stuff out of there. And, and young people will tell you they're actually starting to enjoy some of these elements again because it actually feels more like church. So sometimes things we once did can come back around. What your parents wore in the 80s is becoming cool again. But so often we think that we know how to build God's house. And we build it our way, with our preferences and our desires. I am good at this, therefore that must be what's, what's effective here. Right? And when we do that, we're no better than those who built the Tower of Babel. And the Lord will say to us, you can build all that, but if I'm not in on that building project... If that's not my blueprint, it's not going to stand up. So we can be too lazy, or we can be incredibly laborious with no effective direction of the Lord actually being in it and just kind of do our own thing. And both of them are equally unfruitful. It does not work. It just doesn't. And so here's the challenge. What if those ways are both so tragically wrong? 
What if God neither wants us to just sit there or to get up and do things our own way? What if God is doing a new thing in our midst and he desperately wants us to to understand what that thing is through prayer and through seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance and wisdom? He wants us to just maybe stand there with open hands and say, my time, my talent, and my treasure is yours. What do you want me to do with it? How do you want me to use it? But we're so unable to listen because we're either too lazy or too willing to just work for our own things rather than his. We don't just want to build what we want to build the way we want to build it. We want to be a church that allows the Lord to shape us and mold us and to say, this church belongs to you, Christ. Every resource in it, whether that's money or people, belongs to you. And all of the labor that we have is given to you. So at a church level, this psalm informs how we are to function. But at an individual level, it does the same thing as well. And that's where the last part comes in. How on earth does the second half of Psalm 127 factor into this idea of work and rest? If you're a parent, raise your hand. If you think that parenting is not work, keep your hand up. (laughs) I like when we have unanimous decisions in the church. Parenting is hard work, but here's why it's put here. Children are one of the things and examples of, of godly work that is never in vain. When we invest our time, you're asking, should I invest more into my job to make more money? I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Right? Maybe enough is enough. But you'll never regret investing and training up and raising your children in the Lord. And so this, this passage is here, not as a definitive tell-all, end-all, but as an example of a type of work that would be after what God desires and wants for us. And so what does he say? He says, children are a blessing. They're a gift from the Lord. And raising them and spending time with them is never in vain. It's one example of work. And at a micro level, what the second half of Psalm 127 says is, if you want to know how to be laborious in a way that's never going to be in vain, invest in kids. Maybe your own kids. Maybe people's kids in the church. Maybe people's kids in your communities. Right? Invest in them and get them to understand who God is, how he's at work in their lives, and how they can follow him. And none of that will ever be in vain. Not a single parent I know who has grown kids and is in their 70s and 80s says, you know, I wish, I wish I would have spent that night answering emails rather than hanging out with my kid and investing and pouring into them. Now, does that mean that you should feel guilty if there's a night where you have to answer? No, right? Work is work, and sometimes we just have to get something done. But we don't overwork. We find rest. We do what we need to do And we say enough is enough. And sometimes, here's the reality, whatever job you're in, I don't care if you sweep the floors or if you run a company, whatever job you're in, you're never going to actually get enough done in that day. You will never, ever, if you work hard enough, they're never going to have a week where you're like, oh, there's nothing to do. I finished this job. (laughs) I'm now done. Right? You're going to work in that job And you're going to work and work and work week in, week out until you retire. And then you're going to leave and someone else is going to keep working. 
So do what you can do. Put in your honest day and faithfully trust that the Lord will have enough and then invest your time in the things that last. And here's, here's the macro level at which the second half of 127 matters. It's not just about children. It's about relationships in general. Because here's the real kicker of this. We are called into every area of our life that we're in. We're called to be in the professions that we're in for one primary reason only, and that is to build relationships. We're called to be a people that build relationship. Eugene Peterson says it this way, the character of our work is not shaped by accomplishments or possessions, but in the birth of relationships. Ultimately, if you want to know, what is my point on earth? What's the work I'm supposed to be doing? That's what it is. We have to remember that our primary work is witness. I don't care who you are. If you want to make sure that you don't labor in vain, remember this. If you're a waitress, your primary job isn't to put food on a table, but to love people, to let them see Christ in you as you do that work. If your job as a lawyer, it's so that you can meet people in the midst of their need and demonstrate love and grace and compassion to them. If you're a mechanic, it's so that you can display God's honest character as you fix cars and not upsell somebody on something. Please, mechanics, stop doing that. If you're a Christian who's a mechanic, how can you be better honest than to say, I'm going to do my work with integrity and honesty. If something's this much to fix, I'm going to charge as much as I need to and no more. I'm going to do it honestly. I'm not going to try to pretend something's broken that isn't. And when people come to my shop, they're going to know that I'm a man of integrity or a woman of integrity and honesty. If you are an accountant, it's so that you can demonstrate God's display of an ordered world. The guy who does my taxes, God bless him. This guy named Ethan out in Boston. We just email back and forth. Man, he brings order to a chaotic world in my life. Because I look at it at the end of the year and I go, I don't know. This is the first year I had to do taxes as an ordained pastor. And if you don't know, taxes as an ordained pastor, there is someone that sits in the IRS whose job it is to make sure that taxes for pastors is the hardest thing to do possible. And every year they're like, what if we added a subcloset? Ethan demonstrates to me how created the creation is ordered, how God is a God of order by, by putting an order to something that seems to have none to me. So if you're an accountant, that's, that's your primary role. It's not to make the numbers add up, but it's to show the order and the love of God to people as you make something make sense that they can't on their own. If you're a teacher, it's so that you can be a witness to God's patience and compassion, especially if you're teaching little kids. Do you realize that? Your, your primary role isn't that they know math when you're done with them. Your primary role is that they see in you the love and the care and the immense patience and compassion and understanding nature of who God is through you. You get to be that witness. Whatever it is that you do in life, the relationships that you build in it are the primary fruit Maybe you're in your 30s and 40s. You're going to retire someday, and you're not going to give a rip how many units you sold. Right? What you're going to remember is the relationships that you built and the way that you used your job as an opportunity, as a platform to get to know people, to love people, to care for people. 
And as God's people, that's why we're called to work. He calls us to work, to be in a professional setting so that we rub shoulders with other people everywhere we go. So that we creatively can, can be a witness to his majesty and his glory and his kingdom. That's your primary work. Every one of your job descriptions at the very top should say, witness to the kingdom. Effective communication skills. Right? That should be the first thing. What people are going to remember about you isn't the amount of food you serve, the amount of cases you won, the amount of budgets you balanced, the amount of graduates you produced, but your character and who you were and who you were to them. If you manage people, they're not going to remember the review, the performance review you gave them three years ago. But they'll remember, if, if you're their boss, that, man, they were sick that one time and you showed them grace. They went to the hospital and maybe you showed up broke that personal barrier and you said, hey, I care about you. You're not just an employee. You're a person with worth and dignity made in God's image just as I am. I'm here for you. They'll remember that for the rest of their lives. They can leave your job 20 years later. They'll still remember that boss they had who demonstrated the character of God to them in tangible, caring, loving ways. We are called to do our work with a love and an excitement and a jubilance and an integrity that displays the majesty and the love of Christ to the world around us. And we're supposed to get up and do it, do it throughout our day, do it well, do it with every fiber that we have. And at the end of the day, even if there's work left to be due, we're to say to ourselves, God is faithful, there is tomorrow. If I'm not here tomorrow, someone else will be. This will get done The God of gods is able to do it. And he, as I am working, is also working. And if I work for him, and if I order my work under him, and if I submit my work and I lay it at his feet and I do it with integrity to the best of my ability, at the end of the day, I can go to sleep and God will give me rest and free me from anxiety of constantly having to produce more and more and more. Let's be about being a people that find rest If you want to develop a healthy theology of work that lets you find peace, you have to order your work under the way that God created it to be for the reason he created it to be. There is a reason before the fall that God made work. He didn't have to. He could have had us be lazy loungers. He didn't. Our work has meaning and purpose, but it doesn't have the meaning and purpose that the world says it has. Let's be a people that demonstrate what it means to be workers after God's own heart. What you can take with you at the end of your life isn't your bonus every year, but it's the relationships that you built. And when you work God's way, his promise is that the rest that you find will last. Let's be about that rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of rest. We thank you that you love us, and care for us. We thank you that you call us into certain places to work, that you have called us to be in all kinds of different fields. You've called us to be salesmen. You've called us to be tax professionals. You've called us to be nurses and doctors and lawyers and educators and farmers. We thank you that you intimately know us. 
and who we are and where our giftedness lies. In the midst of that, that you call us unto yourself and that you put us in a place somewhere in this world that matches those gifts so that we might be cultivators of your kingdom. Thank you that you love us so much that you order the world and its work around who we are and who you've made us to be. Lord, we pray. We pray that we, through your strength, through your Holy Spirit, we might find the strength and the power and the wisdom to cast off the burden of production. That we might put on a spirit of honesty and integrity and care and love. That we would do the work that you've called us to, not begrudgingly, not until our bones are tired, to the best of our ability each day in and out. And Lord, we ask that after that happens and we go home and we hang up our coat, that you might give us a supernatural rest and peace. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for your character. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who works so that when we hang up our coat, we know that it's not the end of things because you're active and moving in the midst of our lives and the lives of those around us. That as we work, you tell us that you are also working. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Amen.